We've been uh, working on a series, uh, well, one week anyways, we started, uh, called A Gem-Filled Story, and it's from uh, Acts chapter 8. And uh, the reason we call it A Gem-Filled Story is because this story is filled with all kinds of gems. Uh, sometimes we can read a story in the scriptures and we read through and go, wow, that's a cool story. Uh, but sometimes when you spend a little time and you look deeper within, you will realize that there are a lot of hidden gems in that story. And if you can throw up that PowerPoint, that would be great. We uh, looked at this a couple weeks ago. Oh, and thank you, Tamara, for filling in last week. That was awesome. Uh, thank you for that. I've been, uh, my brother's not doing well, my younger brother. And uh, so I've been spending some time with him. But uh, we were working on the Gemfield story and uh, Acts chapter 8. And this story, it, we, we looked at it. It's um, uh, in the setting of the Christians being persecuted. Uh, the early church was, was being persecuted. They had to flee. And we talked a little bit on the opening week about sort of biblical persecution. Uh, often we get it wrong in, in our land because we, we tend to wrongly think it's, it's always the secular society. But biblical persecution is primarily persecution from religious folks. Uh, people who are wrapped up in the rules and the laws. I mean, who primarily persecuted Jesus? It was the religious folks. Who primarily persecuted the, the early church in the book of Acts? It was, it was the religious folks. And, and biblical persecution is primarily around that. And if you look at persecution in the world today, it's often around religious factions. And we as Christians can't get away from that because sometimes we as Christians in history, have been the persecutors, sadly. Uh, but Jesus was being persecuted. Uh, the early church was being persecuted by those who were wrapped up more in the, the rules than in, in the love of God. And so we saw in Acts chapter 8 that there was this great wave of persecution. And that was from the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders against the church. And so they were spread all over. They couldn't remain in Jerusalem. And we looked at this one guy named Philip who was one of the early church leaders, and he fled to this place called Samaria. And it just speaks of how he had the love of Jesus all over him because, I mean, Jews didn't associate with Samaritans and vice versa. Uh, they were enemies. But Philip knew Jesus went to Samaria and loved on the people there. And so when Philip had to leave his hometown, he was like, where am I going to go? He could have gone somewhere in safety to maybe other parts of, of Israel, but he chooses to go into Samaria. And uh, he begins to minister there, and revival hits. Miracles start happening. People start listening to his message, and all of a sudden there's crowds and tents, and, and there's people all over. This major revival hits as Philip ends up in Samaria. But then, as we saw, the most strange thing happens. In the middle of this revival, uh, it says, Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up. And go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. And so in the middle of this revival, and Philip was the founding revivalist. He was kind of like the guy who started it all. God calls him away from the revival, from away from the crowds. And it's not like, you know, Philip, can you go next door or can you go to the next town? Uh, this was a very long journey for him. God calls him down to the wilderness road. That enters into Gaza, the last sort of stop before you went to Egypt. This would be like, I mean, just picture this. I mean, 
you go to a new town and, and you start talking about Jesus to people and, and revival hits. And, and all of a sudden you have thousands of people, <laughs> you know, and, and you're doing miracles and people are being healed when you pray for them. And then you hear a whisper from God who says, could you hop in your car and drive down to the Mexico border? I mean, if, let's just say the borders were open, the COVID wasn't happening. Can you drive down to the Mexico border? Because it's about the same amount of time. Because they didn't have cars, they had to walk it. It would have been a multiple day journey. But you don't hear, God doesn't tell you anything except for it to go. doesn't say why. I mean, would you actually go? <laughs> I kind of highly doubt I would because it's like, God, you're using me here and there's a revival. And what is this? Maybe that was last night's, you know, burger, you know, that I'm hearing things or something. But, but Philip obeys the voice of God. He leaves this revival and he heads down walking all the way to this wilderness road. And you could kind of picture him just kind of sitting on this road saying, now what? And this speaks of his humility. Uh, Philip had this amazing humility about him and, and a soft heart towards the voice of God. And, and this is something for us too. Now we need to, to learn to hear God's voice in that softness. We talked a little bit about that last time. But also to realize that sometimes God does call us out of the spotlight into the small things. You know, often we're more about, you know, I want to be in the spotlight, and, or at least I want to be in the big things, and I want to be the, the, the person that everybody looks up to. And, and, but sometimes God calls us out of that into the small things because often the small things are the things of heaven. Jesus taught at one time, he said, you've, you've observed how godless rule rulers throw their weight around, how quickly a little power goes to their heads. It is not going to be that way with you. Whoever wants to be great must become a servant. And just like most people, we have a lust for power sometimes, and sometimes we can try to hide it under certain things, but, but we kind of like having the attention, like having power, but, but the kingdom is upside down. And, and Philip must have been tempted to stay in, in the limelight, in the spotlight with all this attention, but he's got this humility to understand that sometimes the things of heaven are most brightly seen in the very small things. Don't despise the days of small things. Don't despise it if God calls you from the big things to the little things, because it's often in the little things where the true miracles happen, where you really see God, the goodness of God at work. I mean, Jesus himself is this example. As Philippians says, it says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. In other words, like the guy we follow was willing to leave the spotlight of heaven and to be born as a human and to serve and to love people humbly. And, and Paul says that we were to have that same attitude. And, and Philip did. He was willing to, to leave the spotlight and go to the very small things, and it's in those small things, as so many beautiful saints in church history have found, that often it's in those small things where you really encounter God. And so Philip goes. He goes down, 
and he's waiting on the road, and the most unlikely character walks by or comes by in a, in a chariot. It says, so he got up and went, and it says, now there was an Ethiopian eunuch. And the most odd guy comes along, and he's got this whole entourage and he's in, in this chariot, but uh, God calls him out of a revival to meet with one guy. I mean, and this shows how much God cares for the one. And uh, again, sometimes we get up, you know, you know, as Jesus said, that God's someone who is willing to leave the 99 to go find the one. And often we're, maybe we might be more attracted to the revival and to the 99. But, but, but Jesus says, I'm willing to leave the 99 for the one. And, and he calls Philip away from the thousands or the hundreds down to the one. And sometimes God will call us in the same direction. Because God really, really does care about the one. So much so that he says, Philip, I want you to travel for days to go meet with one person. Now, sometimes we have a hard enough time stopping for five minutes for one person. And sometimes we have a hard enough time, you know, taking half an hour to go help someone out. But, but, but God calls them for days <laughs> to go minister to the one. And, th and this is God's heart. As Jesus said in Luke 12, God never overlooks a single one. And he pays even greater attention to you down to the last detail, even numbering the hairs on your head. So don't be intimidated by all this bully talk. You're worth more than a million canaries. And that's the message version, that, that God cares about you. And sometimes we can, we can think that, you know, God's got bigger things to do and, and more important people to look after. And, and what about me? Because I'm struggling through this and I'm broken in this area. What does God think about God cares so much for you. He is interested in the one. He is focused on the one. And the cool thing is, because he's omnipresent, he is everywhere. He can, he can focus on the one and he can focus on all the ones in incredible, deep, and amazing ways. And this is exactly what Jesus did. I mean, Heidi Baker uh, is, is famous for this. She talks a lot about ministering to the one. One place she writes, talking about Jesus, he loved people back to life. He would go anywhere, talk to anyone, and wherever he went, he would stop for the one, the forgotten one, the one who was rejected, outcast, sick, even stone dead. And, and you see Jesus' ministry that, I mean, there were times when he had the crowds, but often all the little famous stories that you read are often centered around the one, and often that one was some sort of outcast. Again, the, the message of God being God loves the one and he focuses on the one. I mean, like the story of blind Bartimaeus when Jesus is in the crowds and he's headed down the road and, and blind Bartimaeus is calling out, you know, son of David, have mercy on me. And everybody's telling him to shut up and Jesus wouldn't, you know, be interested in you and he doesn't want to stop and talk for people like you. I mean, you're blind and you're an outcast and yet Jesus stops and he looks at him and says, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, I, I want to see. And, and Jesus heals from, he stops for the one. Or, or, or the woman who had the issue of blood, who spent all her money on doctors and was unclean in society's eyes and couldn't go in the temple because she was unclean. And, and he was going to, to minister to someone who, that, was, that was an important situation and there were crowds around him again, but he takes time to stop for the one. This is who God is. And Philip knew that. And when he heard that little voice saying, can you leave the revival and go down to this desert road, Philip was like, yeah, that, that's heaven stuff too. 
Again, we can get so caught up in the big stuff that we miss where God is really working. And I mean, Jesus could have done amazing things in terms of crowds, but he's often stopping and ministering to the one. And, and he calls Philip into that, and he calls us into that same kind of path. So it says, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. And uh, this is an interesting verse right here, because it highlights something that we often run into in the Bible, which we often miss, <laughs> because we're reading it like 2,000 years later. I mean, the Bible was not written like 50 years ago. And if you just think how much culture has changed in the last 50 years, I mean, there are some things my dad tells me, I'm like, that doesn't make sense to me, because, you know, that was just like a different culture. The Bible was written like 2,000 plus years ago, way different culture than ours. And sometimes we read the Bible like it was written yesterday. So we'll read a text and we're like, I, I understand this. And most of us probably would read this and go, I, I understand exactly what this text is saying. It's saying that he ran into a, a, a eunuch who was from Ethiopia and he was a court official for this queen named Candace. Wrong and wrong again. Uh, this is why it's important to have a study Bible, to look at what the scholars do, because they're researching the, the history. The reality is, an Ethiopian in, in that day didn't mean someone from Ethiopia. It just meant someone who was African and black. So anybody who was black and African was considered, and they would just call him an Ethiopian. Secondly, and there's a bit of a hint here, notice it says the Candace. It's not the name of the queen. The Candace was, was a word used of anybody who was an official um, in, in an area known in sort of southern Egypt and northern Sudan. So it was just like the name of all the different officials were called Candaces, the, the Candace. And so uh, he was not from Ethiopia, and the queen's name was not Candace. He was actually from sort of southern Egypt, northern Sudan, completely different area. And he just served under a queen who generally they were called Candace. We don't know the queen's name. And so we can miss stuff like this when we just assume the Bible was written yesterday, but it's not. And there are lots of places in the scripture that have the same issue, where we assume we know what it means, but it doesn't actually mean that because it was written a long time ago in a different culture. And so this guy was pretty famous, uh, at least had a lot of power. He was in charge of her entire treasury. Uh, and it says here that this guy was a eunuch. And a eunuch is someone who had been castrated, and uh, this has been done throughout history. In fact, there are still folks who, uh, in India, it was still a practice not long ago in India where they would castrate people, and they would do this because those folks, once they're castrated, would make perfect servants for dignitaries and kings and queens, for one, because they couldn't have kids. And so there would be no lust for power in terms of, you know, I'm going to steal money or I'm going to steal, I want to steal the throne to, to bless my own. They could have no kids, so they had no you know, motivations to try to serve their families or to take money. And, and plus, because they were castrated, they had no sexual desires. So they made perfect servants for, for queens and princesses. And also, they had no status in society. They were like the bottom of the barrel because so much of your status was based on your, your kids and your family lineage, and they couldn't have it. And so they couldn't really leave the palace because they, they would just be dirt poor and they would have nothing. So they made perfect officials. And this guy was obviously had a lot together. And he made his way up in status under the, the queen. 
and, uh, and was a royal treasurer. And it says here that he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home seated in his chariot, which means, again, he was very rich. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah, which again showed he was very rich because people didn't have Bibles in those days. I mean, for the most of church history, people didn't have Bibles. It's a very modern and privileged thing for us to have Bibles. Most people in church history didn't have a Bible, especially back then, which means he had a lot of dough to get a copy of Isaiah made for him. But he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. And we might say, oh, isn't that beautiful? That's so wonderful that he went to Jerusalem to worship. He must have just had a wonderful time there. And again, reading this text, we, we, we miss stuff. And this is just another one of the gems that we often miss because we don't understand the culture. I mean, we could picture him going to Jerusalem and, you know, worshiping at the temple and having a grand old time and coming home and, and just having, you know, just a beautiful connection with God. Not so. The reason is because eunuchs were not allowed in the temple and they were not allowed to become converts. Um, Deuteronomy 23 very clearly says, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off. I don't know if I've ever said penis in church before, but it's in the Bible. Uh, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord or a nicer translation or a different translation. just says, no eunuch is to enter the congregation of God. So a eunuch would not be allowed to worship in the temple. They could not become a convert. They were not allowed, welcomed in the assembly. They couldn't be baptized. As much as they sought God, as much as they, they followed his desires and his will, they were not welcome in the temple. And the folks had reasons for it. Look, it's in the Bible. The Bible says you're not welcome, so you are not welcome here. They had a scripture verse behind it. Uh, Reverend Dr. Stephanie Spellers, um, who's a pastor, uh, I just want to read how she reflected on this text because she, being an African-American, could relate to some of this in her own past in terms of there are a lot of folks like her and the Ethiopian eunuch who, who really are seeking God, but they're, they're rejected by his people. And that's why I named the sermon Seeking God and Rejected by His People because that is a common thing that a lot of people experience, including this pastor. She says, I remember Sarah, my best friend in high school, we did everything together, show choir, debate, student government, junior year. I was at her house as much as my own, and, tell her, and her parents always welcomed me until the day Sarah came to school in tears because her parents had said they were tired of having me in their home, tired of pretending it was all right for a black girl to be daughter's, uh, to be daughter's best friend, not in their Christian home. And there's a time, and there still is in people's hearts, where there's this kind of racism where, you know, don't, don't you dare marry interracial. Don't you, you know, I don't want my kid hanging around with someone of a different race. And, you know, there are Christians who can find Bible verses to sort of back that up because, you know, there's Bible verses in the Old Testament that talk about, you know, interracial marriage. But, but I mean, she, she had a heart for God but was being rejected by his people. And he goes, she goes on and says, I remember Wayne, my best friend in college. When he came out of the closet, his Christian family kicked him out. As simple as that, don't come home for Christmas. My mom, a single black mother in Kentucky who was working too much to have time for church said, bring that boy to our house. There ain't enough love in the world to complain about where anybody finds it. So no, in those formative years, I, I threw up a wall between me and Christianity. And yet, 
God would not let me rest. The spiritual questions, hunger, longings had me in their grip. I went to Harvard Divinity School to study Buddhism and, and liberation theology. I was proud to graduate divinity school and still not be baptized. Like Gandhi was speaking for me when he said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. I always figured if I ever see Christians who embody the loving, liberating, life-giving God they say they follow, I'll come in. But I don't want to give them the power, the power to hurt me. So I understand the Ethiopian eunuch. I imagine him on the wilderness road, heartbroken and confused. He came to uh, the temple in a chariot. This brother had truly arrived, a court official of the Candace. He rolled up with all his power, education, and status. Maybe he got as far as the outer courts before someone stopped him. Deuteronomy 23 makes it clear. You are, not, uh, you are a eunuch. You have been castrated. You cannot be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. I, he couldn't be admitted. I was not allowed in the temple. He could not be baptized. And the fascinating thing at the end of the story, and this is what we're going to talk about in the coming weeks, is that Philip knowing there was a scripture that said he was not welcome in the temple, he couldn't be accepted into the... What does Philip do? Philip baptizes him. Philip welcomes him into the family of God because he understands the old covenant was obsolete and Jesus is doing a new thing and the grace is flowing under Jesus. And the reality is this eunuch was not the only one. Because if you go back to the Old Testament, I mean, uh, there were rules about intermarrying, you must not intermarry with them, so do not let your, your daughters and your sons marry their sons and daughters. In Deuteronomy 23, it says, if a person is illegitimate by birth, neither he nor his descendants for 10 generations may be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. Imagine that. I mean, you're born because of a rape or because of you know, adultery, and for 10 generations, you are not allowed in the family of God. You are not allowed into the temple because of something you didn't even do. Or no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants for 10 generations may be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. And so in, in the old covenant law, there were all these rules that had barriers and walls. And, and that's why in Jesus' day, there was all these barriers in the temple, a barrier for the Gentiles. And there was a sign that said, and they have found this archaeologically, a sign that actually reads that if a Gentile passes this, you, you'd be subject to death. And then if you were a Jew, you could go a little bit further uh, if you're a Jewish woman, there was another wall, because if you're a woman, you couldn't go further than a Jewish man. And then Ephesians 2 pops in under Jesus, and it says that Jesus has broken down the dividing walls. Speaking of the temple, that all these dividing walls have been destroyed, and everyone is welcome. The curtain of the temple is torn in two, and now there is life under Jesus. And we, so we see Jesus uh, with this new reality, this new heart, where he is reaching out to those that were outcasts and reaching out to the broken and reaching out to the one. And a perfect illustration of that, of course, is the woman at the well who was not welcome in the temple. She was a Samaritan, wouldn't even be welcome in Jerusalem. And she was not even welcomed by her own people. She was an outcast. I mean, it says that she was divorced five times. And this is why she was another little hidden gem, why she went to the well at noon. Nobody did that. Everybody would go in the morning because it's hot in the, during at noon, but she goes at noon because nobody else would be there because she was considered an outcast from her own people, rejected. And who does Jesus talk to? Jesus meets with her and says, you are welcome, and I do love you. 
and, and, and God's going to meet with you. And, and he reveals himself to her and says, you are accepted. And this is the message of Jesus. This is the message of the gospel. This is the message that we're going to talk about next week because uh, Philip talks to this Ethiopian eunuch who was rejected by God's people, and Philip says to him, no, no, you are accepted, and I'm going to baptize you because you are welcome in the family of God. Because anyone who has a heart that is seeking is welcome in the family of God. And, and this is how we are to live. We are to live into Philip's example. To live in Philip's example of being willing to leave the crowds for the one, to do the heaven thing and minister in those small places. And we got to do the Philip thing. When we see people being rejected and excluded and cast out, we got to say, no, 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 you're welcome here. Because Jesus welcomed them. So Father, we thank you that you have welcomed us in. You got all these barriers and all these dividing walls because of defects and, and leprosy and blindness and being a eunuch and being different, being strange, all these barriers that people erect, being of different races. And, and, and God, we, we just thank you that you have torn those down, that we are all one in Christ Jesus. God, we thank you for the family of God. I thank you that we are not better than each other. We're just all your family, your brothers and sisters. God, your children. I thank you that you love us, God. We thank you that you work in us, and we love you, Jesus. Amen.